0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: You're listening to The Thirty Years' War by When Diplomacy Fails, Episode 2. The 1555 Peace of Augsburg was known to its contemporaries as the Religious and Profane Peace, and it's known today for its ultimately doomed effort to ease the religious tensions of the Holy Roman Empire. However, a closer examination of the actual text which constituted this agreement demonstrates that... This section on confessional differences formed only a small part of the wide-ranging reform package agreed by the Reichstag. Additional issues were also discussed, such as adjusting the public peace, revising imperial tax quotas, and providing new regulations on currency. This according to the historian Peter H. Wilson. Augsburg contained no statements on religious doctrine or the actual expression of faith. Instead, the major drive was aimed at bringing both Catholics and Lutherans within the same legal framework so that both would be bound by the same laws and rights and both creeds would be induced to maintain the peace. Those that drafted Augsburg were tasked with piecing together the shattered medieval unity of law and faith. Since religion provided the ultimate guide for all human endeavours, the two seemed indivisible. Since there could only be one truth, there could only be one law. Yet Augsburg declared that both confessional camps could be right, a groundbreaking step which ultimately proved a step too far. The religious stipulations of the peace deserve mention, and since this episode is called The Small Print, you won't be too surprised to see us go into a little bit of detail on it. But when we consider the profound impact that these stipulations were to have on the Holy Roman Empire in the years that followed, it is worthwhile looking at them. First, Lutheranism would be undeniably recognised in 1555, and accepted as a religious creed within the Holy Roman Empire, and would be as legal as Catholicism. Second, these two religious persuasions were then applied to the rulers of the disparate states within the Empire. Whichever persuasion the ruler in question happened to be, his entire state and possessions would have to follow. For example, if the Elector of Saxony was to be a Lutheran, as he was, then his subjects would have to embrace Lutheranism also. Minorities in either the Catholic or Lutheran case would not be permitted to worship in public, and they lacked the rights and protections of their peers who followed the faith of the ruler. This latter point, that he who rules decides the religion, would in time be given its Latin designation, cuis regio, eius religio, and become a focal point over the years that followed, especially when accompanied by the Reservatum Ecclesiasticum, a ruling which stipulated that if a Catholic archbishop bishop or prelate, converted to Lutheranism, then his archbishopric, bishopric, prelacy and other benefices together with all their income and revenues which he has so far possessed shall be abandoned by him without any further objection or delay and an individual espousing the old religion, in other words a Catholic would be elected to succeed in his place It was Archduke Ferdinand, rather than his brother Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, who managed to, as Thirty Years' War expert Peter H. Wilson put it, convert the temporary arrangements evolving since 1521 into a more stable peace, securing broad acceptance of this as necessary to preserve the cherished imperial unity. The years before this agreement, taking place in the 1555 Imperial Diet, which had been moved to Augsburg, were filled with turmoil, constant religious disagreement, and regular bouts of conflict. Augsburg seemed to apply a healing salve to such woes, which had ripped up relations between the German princes and their betters in the 1520s, 30s and 40s, and it also provided a solution which, it seemed, at least on paper, all could adhere to. Yet, primarily because this 1555 Peace of Augsburg was designed to appeal to all and to grant all the opportunity to interpret its, sometimes vague, principles as they desired, the entire agreement was, in the words of one historian, rife with inherent contradictions and impracticalities. Although the position of princes and electors seemed clear, the free imperial cities the knights, and the counts were all in something of a limbo, since it was unclear how far each enjoyed the same powers as princes to change the faith of their subjects. The decisions of Augsburg seemed to contradict the position of the Holy Roman Emperor as the political leader of European Christendom. In an effort to cope with such a contradiction, the religious elements of Augsburg were deliberately blurred. As Peter H. Wilson wrote, Lutherans were referred to as adherents of the Confession of Augsburg, without defining what that meant, while use of words like peace, religious belief, and reformation were a deliberate attempt to incorporate values that all still shared, yet understood differently. For Lutherans, reformation meant the right of legally constituted authorities to change the religious practice, in line with their founders' teachings. To Catholics, it confirmed their church's role, in spiritual guidance. Aside from these flaws, what appears the most glaring omission of the Peace of Augsburg was the status of Calvinism, the other major creed in the Empire by 1618. Augsburg recognized only Lutherans and Catholics, Calvinists were technically outlawed, and they had been ignored in 1555 because, to put it simply, Barely any potentates of any significance adhered to that creed at the time, and John Calvin was himself only then beginning his journey to France. Since it was from Lutherans that Calvinists tended to receive the most converts, confessional dislike between the two Protestant creeds grew to incendiary levels by the turn of the century, and helped facilitate the cause of the Counter-Reformation, which was able to provide a united image of Catholicism in contrast to Protestant disunity and chaos. From 1555 to 1618, then, the Peace of Augsburg provided a temporary solution to the immediate religious problems of the Holy Roman Empire. These problems, such as they were in 1555, were made still more urgent as the decades progressed and issues of interpretation with Augsburg continued to develop. As Brennan Purcell put it, These tensions produced no small amount of mutual antagonism, but it did not lead inevitably to the relentless bloodshed from 1618 to forty eight. The Peace of Augsburg had placated warring confessions in 1555, but it had not prearranged the series of crises that incited and escalated the Thirty Years' War. Rather than guaranteeing constitutional paralysis and extensive international interference, the Peace of Augsburg had provided grounds for at least 50 years of what has been called Unusual Constitutional Liveliness and Openness. Indeed, Augsburg has often been blamed for crises which could not have been foreseen in 1555. The conversion to Calvinism of several princes and two actual electors in the empire, that being the Palatine and Brandenburg electors, threw a confusing spanner in the works, as some of these rulers attempted to apply the cuius regio, eius religio, principle, even while Calvinism was technically excluded from those very stipulations. With the exception of the Cologne War in the 1580s, though, few direct attempts were made to challenge the principles of Augsburg. It seemed as though many were content to adhere to its stipulations, so long as the traumatic memories of sectarian conflict remained fresh. As the years progressed, though, attitudes hardened, and efforts were made after the 1580s actively to apply the principle of cuius regio eius religio in the lands of certain rulers. As we will see, tensions arose as Lutherans were caught out by the pace of the Counter-Reformation, as Calvinism spread, and as the religious refugees from all sides further complicated matters. The increased influence of the Jesuits and their sway over the hearts and minds of the Habsburg family in particular also helped to push tensions further to the fore. At one point Augsburg had represented peace, yet the population growth of the 16th century, the varied interpretations of the peace and the disparate nature of inheritance, dynastic extinction and expansion all contributed to the perceived instability of the religious settlement by the second decade of the 17th century. Its failure to permanently heal the rift caused by the Reformation has led some historians to criticise it as doomed from the start. Yet, it should be said that, for at least a generation after 1555, the Peace of Augsburg provided a measure of religious calm when states like France were tearing themselves asunder over the religious and political questions that seemed so intertwined. Having healed, temporarily at least, the religious rift in the empire. Charles V, master of more lands than the Habsburg family had ever held or would ever hold again, relinquished powers to the Austrian and Spanish branches of the dynasty, that being his brother and his son, respectively. The abdication and subsequent retirement to a religious house fascinated those contemporaries that knew of Charles as the protector of Christendom. Yet it was for cynical reasons too that Charles chose to divide his dominions. The Habsburgs, contrary to what their lofty title may have suggested, could not wield all the power at once. They had proved terminally unable to rule as the Roman emperors had once ruled. Instead of the unending ambition of Trajan, Charles V had preached sense and reform. Such reform was necessary, he reasoned, if the Habsburgs were to survive this new tide of religious division and chaos, which threatened to destroy the reconstitution constitution of the Holy Roman Empire itself. The 1555 Peace of Augsburg had placed a temporary bandage over the wounds of the HRE, but the peace was continually placed in jeopardy thanks to changing circumstances of the empire and the escalation of princely rivalries within it. The growth of creeds like Calvinism challenged the fundamental tenets of Augsburg which had declared only Lutheranism and Calvinism to be lawful religious persuasions. Similarly, the Reservatum Ecclesiasticum, which stipulated that a Catholic ruler converting to Lutheranism would have to abandon his lands, evoked fierce debate from the Protestant contingents of the Empire, who claimed that they had never agreed to this clause in the first place. Dynastic and political rivalry between the Duke of Bavaria and the Elector of the Palatinate also coloured relations between the two religious camps, a trend which would escalate dangerously in the first decade of the 17th century. As Charles V's brother, Ferdinand, and his successors, Maximilian II, Rudolf II and Matthias also learned, security in the East against the threat posed by the Ottoman Turk was only guaranteed if concessions were made to the Protestants in the Habsburg-Austrian lands. In return for religious concessions, the Protestants would vote tax in support of the war effort and peacetime reinforcement. The support of the Protestants was essential for the Austrian Habsburgs because the Lutheran creed happened to be supreme among the nobility of Upper and Lower Austria, with as many as 90% of those in Lower Austria converting to Lutheranism by 1580. Indeed, as Charles of Styria, Emperor Maximilian II's younger brother, had it put to him by his court preacher. The Turkish threat is a blessing for the Protestants. If it were not for that, we would be able to deal with them in a very different way. Indeed, the lax implementation of the Peace of Augsburg in the Habsburg's very own lands is a prime example of the fact that circumstances often got in the way of its tenets. Faced with the expansion and empowerment of Protestants in their lands a determined effort was made by Maximilian's brothers to effect a reduction in their influence and presence through the Counter-Reformation. Through deliberate and sustained policies, the Protestants would be combated not with sound and with fury, but surreptitiously and slowly, not with words, but with deeds. Charles of Styria and his brothers died before much work could be done to these ends, but Charles's son, Ferdinand, returning from a Jesuit education in 1595, proved more than up to the task. In the event, the 17-year-old Ferdinand of Styria would effect a striking change in his lands. After visiting the Pope in 1598, which, according to one historian, he no doubt explained his plan of campaign. Ferdinand then set to work. He immediately determined to adhere to the terms of the Peace of Augsburg. Ordering all Protestant clergy and school teachers out of his lands, he oversaw the burning of some 10,000 prohibited books and he established a Reformation Commission to conduct his orders more efficiently. With a single-minded determination, Ferdinand forced some 2,500 of his most prominent subjects into exile, taking advantage of the fear instilled in his subjects by the Turkish threat, to the point that one historian noted how Ferdinand had managed to revive his grandfather's, that is, Charles V's, policy of divide and rule with startling success. Yet the success was misleading. Shaped by the increased influence of the Jesuit fathers, who operated four colleges within the Habsburg lands, Ferdinand and his contemporaries became more hardline, more severe, and less willing to compromise. The attempts to purge his lands of Protestants largely complete Ferdinand of Styria remained deeply influenced by the Jesuits he surrounded himself with. They preached a stern, uncompromising and legalistic faith and upped the tensions of the region and the nature of religious debate, becoming, as Geoffrey Parker noted, steadily more aggressive as their policies produced results. Yet the Jesuits did manage to greatly increase the progress and the scope of the Counter-Reformation, which by 1590 had brought scores of old Bohemian and Austrian noble families back to Catholicism. Before we examine the details of the Counter-Reformation and how it was made so successful, I wanted to talk to you guys about something very exciting. You see, the script or the episode that you're listening to right now is actually a very, very small part of a very, very large book, which will be coming out in the next few weeks. If you were to head on over to WDFpodcast.com forward slash shop, or simply click on the link in the description of this episode below, then you will be able to get that book. It says pre-order because it's not available quite yet, but it will be available soon. Officially, there's a January release date, But even while it is finished, the final details often take a little while, so don't expect it in January, probably more likely February, but it is going to be here soon, so if you want to get on board, make sure you go and order it from wdfpodcast.com forward slash shop. For those wonderful history friends that signed up to become PhD pals in the month of October, a book is already on its way to you, or at least it will be when it's finished, And your names are immortalized in the acknowledgements section of the book. So thanks so much for making that all possible. Perhaps if books aren't your thing, you could check out the other parts of the shop, wherein we also sell mugs, t-shirts, bottle openers, and many more things besides. So if the January sales have not taken all your monies quite yet, or there's a birthday coming up at an inconvenient time and you just don't know where else to go, head on over to our shop. And let's see what WDF Podcast and the entrepreneurship of Zach Twomley can do for you. Entrepreneurship is probably a bit stronger term, but even so, it's me powering this business along, and it's me that will be shipping the order to you. So make sure you go on over to that shop, the Merchant's Quarter as I call it, and add something new to your horse and cart today. Anyway, back to the episode. So how can we explain the success of the Counter-Reformation? Well, the major reason for the apparent resurgence of Catholicism is found in the clear message and united front that Catholicism could present to the wider world. Protestants, by contrast, seemed doomed to split repeatedly over several issues and the divided nature of Protestantism. And the divided nature of Protestantism, combined with a lack of leadership from one single source, as the papacy represented, provided further incentive. A second point related to this can be added, the repeated splitting and divisions of different Protestant creeds led to increased bickering between them. As converts from one creed to another would often identify as Protestant, this meant that Lutherans, for example, lost the bulk of their converts to Calvinism, a fact which led to resentment and eventually hatred towards the Calvinists. The conversion of Protestants back to the Catholicism of their forefathers also saw a reduction in Protestant control over important schools, pamphlets, and printing presses, which traditionally spread the Protestant message. With these no longer in Protestant hands, the Catholic voices were normally heard above them, which created a greater awareness and, eventually, more converts. Added to this was the very opportunistic creation of several Catholic orders which spoke to the nobleman's place in society. The Jesuits, or to give them their full name, the Society of Jesus, were highly active in their spreading of wealth, in appointing impressive representatives across the different capitals of Europe, and in their approaches to influential noblemen, all, of course, under the watchful eye and sponsorship of the papacy. Through the nobles, as much as the princes, could the reformation be properly countered, as these individuals were the true actors in society.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Society ...and could serve as conduits for their subjects, who would be compelled to follow suit? This combination of papal-sponsored orders of maintaining a united front and of approaching and proselytizing to the most influential in society proved highly effective... With their success, they could groom and release intensely motivated princes and potentates to continue and further their work. Men such as King Sigismund III of Poland, King Philip III of Spain, and, as we have seen, Ferdinand of Styria. Yet, the Counter-Reformation did not ensure a greater adherence to the whims and authority of the Holy Roman Emperor. In fact, with religious tensions growing following the Peace of Augsburg in 1555... A set of crises concerning that religious make-up, as well as the Roman Empire's constitutional structure, further aggravated tensions. In the 1580s, in the city of Cologne, an archbishopric and elector in the imperial college, the stage was set for a five-year conflict, which erupted once the individual ruling there converted to Lutheranism, and refused to abandon his lands as per the Reservatum Ecclesiasticum. This ruling had stipulated, if you need a reminder, that any convert to Lutheranism would have to abandon his lands to a Catholic peer, and so the Catholic potentates claimed. This had been agreed to by all sides at Augsburg in 1555, but, if you'll also remember, the Protestants claimed that they had never recognised this ruling, and that they never would have agreed to it had they been made properly aware of it. They suspected its authenticity now. This war of the Cologne succession, which was waged from 1583 to 88, pitted the aforementioned Archbishop Elector with his Dutch and Palatine supporters against the Catholic camp of Ernst of Bavaria, his intended replacement, and Philip II of Spain. Duke William of Bavaria, Ernst of Bavaria's brother, ran up debts of over five hundred thousand talers in his fight against the Protestant influence, which would have adversely affected the balance of electors within the Electoral College. These events now bring us to a point where we must clarify what we mean when we talk of the Holy Roman Empire and its institutions. We saw in the first episode where the Holy Roman Empire came from, but we need now to explain how the whole thing actually works. We are greeted with some important questions, not least of which was the pressing dilemma of how a state as large and unwieldy as the HRE was to be administered. It is also worth considering the office of Holy Roman Emperor, and what powers and responsibilities such an office upheld. Before we begin such a daunting task, it is important to note, in the words of one historian, The Imperial Constitution is almost impossible to clarify. In other words, the Holy Roman Empire was quite unlike any state, and I use that term very loosely, that came before it, or which has come since. The famous phrase from Voltaire that it was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire, exemplifies the set of contradictions and challenges posed to historians by a polity which was far from holy, in no sense Roman, and not exactly an empire, certainly not by the 17th century standards. On the other hand, there is good reason to approach the Holy Roman Empire with a degree of respect rather than merely dismissing it as an unsuitable, unworkable polity. When writing on Benjamin Franklin's journey to the Holy Roman Empire in 1766, one historian was able to note that the German Federation might have influenced his plan of colonial union within the Thirteen Colonies, an idea which underwrites the great historic and legalistic impression that the Holy Roman Empire left on its contemporaries. In the case of these contemporaries, the empire was far from a mere source of intimidation or bemusement on account of its complex inner workings. On the contrary, it was often upheld as the purest form of German government, and part of the natural order of European states, if for no other reason than the fact that it had existed for nearly a millennium by this point. Part of this reverence can be explained by the Holy Roman Empire's longevity and the impossible task of imagining any other power emerging to take its place. Nonetheless, it is necessary to make some attempt to traverse these challenges so that it's possible for us to understand how this complex polity careened towards such a ruinous conflict in 1618. To begin with, the Holy Roman Empire of the German Nation, to give it its full title, was led nominally by the Holy Roman Emperor. The constitutional basis for the Empire was established in the Golden Bull of 1356, which described the procedure for the election of the Emperor and the constitution of the Electoral College. Within this Electoral College were seven entities capable of voting. And these were deemed electors, which is at least one part of the process that they've made easy to understand for us. The golden bull named them as the archbishoprics of Mainz cologne and Trier with the secular rulers of the king of Bohemia the margrave of Brandenburg the duke of Saxony and the count of the palatinate on the rhine gaining the remaining votes the empire thus takes the form of an elective monarchy with the seven electors balancing the authority of the emperor and ensuring his responsibilities towards the empire be respected These responsibilities included powers to bestow princely titles, to grant legal privileges, to name notaries, judges, and members of the imperial supreme court. The emperor was the designated feudal overlord of the empire, and in rank at least, was above all other potentates of the empire, and depending on whom you asked, he was the supreme ruler of Europe and the world itself. In a predominantly feudal polity such as the HRE, the different princes, dukes, archbishops, counts, knights, and electors, etc. were his subjects, even while the Emperor himself could never wield anything close to absolute authority over these subjects, certainly not by our time period of the 17th century. Such actors, from the largest of the imperial free cities to the most minuscule principality, all possessed some form of local representation in their regional assemblies, and these regional assemblies were, confusingly, known as estates, as one historian sympathetically puts it for us. This structure encouraged local independence, even while, as per the traditional feudal contract, the overlord in the person of the emperor could call upon his vassals to act. Once called upon, the emperor could expect a positive or negative response depending on his own power, on the power or status of his subject, and on the relationship he enjoyed with them. The more powerful the subject, the less likely it was that he would follow the Emperor's requests to the letter. Unless, of course, the Emperor enjoyed a good relationship with him, and could find a way to motivate him into acting. The depth and range of the parallel and associated institutions within the HRE, and the terminology, rhetoric, and history which went along with them, are certainly something to behold, yet to begin a deep dive into the complex and detailed minutiae of the Empire's inner workings would delay and frustrate one of the primary aims of this series, which is to present as accessible an account of the Thirty Years' War as possible, so in this episode our aim is to clarify and classify as best as we can the elements of the HRE which will be relevant to our experience of the Thirty Years' War. With that in mind, it's necessary to dwell for a moment on the aforementioned estates of the empire. Two observations concerning the territorial diets provide a good starting point, wrote the historian Tim New in his article examining the extent of representation which the estates of the empire were able to grant their subjects. And when we say representation, we really mean, in a sense, how Democratic they can be considered to be, not just by modern standards, but just by the flat standard of whether or not people got to vote and whether or not these votes actually counted for something. The first observation that Tim New had went as follows. He explained simply, delegates talked. They deliberated, voted, and delivered orations, as long as the diet was in session. Tim New's second observation was that. Territorial estates claimed to be representatives of the land, the territory, and the subject. New continued that in light of the realities of the Holy Roman Empire, it is possible to conclude that Delegates to territorial diets talked even though there was almost nothing for them to decide, and even though there was no formal means by which to substantiate their claim to represent the land and the people. Accordingly, All the talking and all the assertions seem irrational and useless. Although Tim New did not believe it was inherently fair to label the Empire's representative processes as such, it is worth considering the role of the Estates in the Empire, and whether we can define precisely what the Estates did. Clarifying such questions will make imagining the Empire's complex inner workings that much easier, and will help to explain why the Habsburgs and their enemies acted and reacted as they did. It should be noted first that several watershed moments within the Thirty Years' War occurred because they were voted or pushed for by specific estates. This makes understanding and appreciating what these estates would have looked like all the more important. When we speak of the estates in a given region behaving this way or that, what we mean is that large assemblies of men gathered to discuss and debate the pertinent issues of the day and they settled on a specific set of objectives or principles which could then be presented to their lord. In local issues, their lord took the form of the local regional ruler, the archbishop, prince, duke or count, etc. The act of discussing and talking over the issues in the estates did not mean that these individuals were engaging in a genuinely democratic process, though. Estates are often simply equated with modern democratic parliaments, And while this is an easier way to imagine them, and while they do share many similarities with our modern equivalents, this can give us an inaccurate impression of what these estates had the power to precisely do. So when we imagine parliaments, we generally think of democratic systems where said parliament possesses several important prerogatives and holds a worthy place in the functioning of the state. However, in the 17th century and beforehand, this was generally not the case. The confusion over terminology can be explained with a brief lesson in etymology, which I'm sure you all want really badly right now. You see, the term Parliament and its counterparts in other languages is sourced from the French verb parlour, to talk. Parliaments were and remain places to discuss and debate the pressing issues facing the members in its assembly. Yet only since the late 18th century did parliaments become associated with direct political representation. The act of talking did not automatically lead to action on the part of the local ruler, although in most cases, the estates were required to approve taxation, for instance. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, but throughout Europe it very much depended who was in the ascendant. For example how many prerogatives the actual ruler, so the king, the prince, the doge, if we're going to go the Venetian route, or any other main man in these states had in comparison to the parliament, and how much he had to listen to the parliament if indeed a parliament existed there at all. To put this in perspective, it wasn't until the disastrous English intervention in the Franco-Dutch War that the English parliament decided enough was enough, and the prerogatives for deciding on foreign policy, were effectively removed from the British King. In the future, in other words, he would have to have his decisions on foreign policy approved beforehand by Parliament. Attendance in Parliament's attendance in the estates, in other words, did not equate to representation of that Assembly's views or the ruler's acceptance of such views, the act of talking amongst one's peers was nonetheless viewed as a worthwhile endeavour, though. Even if a German noble's participation in his local estates did not represent a necessarily democratic process, it was a tradition of the Holy Roman Empire's constitutional processes, and thus it was highly respected. Of course, it was a strange contradiction. Those that attended the estates or regional diets were not accountable to the peasantry or their peers. They were not elected to sit at these estates, and they were not authorized to pass legislation or act in the ruler's name. Yet at times the decisions of the estates could have monumental consequences, as they took their case to the Holy Roman Emperor himself at times. This, incidentally, was what happened in Bohemia in 1618, when the Bohemian estates made several urgent deputations to the emperors Matthias and then Ferdinand II. The Bohemian case will be examined in all of its incendiary detail in later episodes, but for now, we're not quite finished with the topic of estates. Bear with me, guys. Some additional clarification on estates as a term is necessary for us. As with several of the HRE's associated institutions, where confusion often reigns over their structure and their function, estates can confound the casual history enthusiast, thanks to the multi-layered nature of estates as a term. Used in a form familiar to students of the French Revolution, estates didn't just refer to assemblies, but also to the different classes, if you want to call them that, of the population. The three estates of the empire were the commons, the clergy and the princes, and, as Peter H. Wilson noted, The ideal was an interlocking system in which all should accept their allotted place, because all derived benefit from the functions performed by others on their behalf. These three social estates of the empire included vast chasms of difference within each estate. For example, the growth of individual cities led to the emergence of a wealthier merchant class within the commons, and these merchants resented being lumped together with the common peasant. Similarly, the minor prince was well aware that he was outranked by the electors of the empire, but he did not like to be reminded of this fact. In the case of the clergy, prince-bishops and archbishops stood far above the common priest in terms of ranks. All of these variations in status were reflected when it came time to sit in the regional assembly. All were represented in the one room, but one sat on a given bench and in a certain place, depending on his social status. For example, in 1498, the clearly insecure Duke of Lower Bavaria successfully petitioned the electors in the Imperial Diet to reduce the height of their platform so that the ordinary princes of the Empire would not be seated so far beneath them. Given what we know already about the inner workings of the HRE, it should go without saying that The social hierarchy was complex and fragmented, as Peter H. Wilson observed. And as the economy, population, and religious persuasions of the empire changed and altered with time, the different social strata became still harder to explain and justify. Economic success in business could mean that a wealthy merchant far outstripped the monetary capabilities of his prince. Yet it was this prince in his principality where the merchant operated that stood far above him in the pecking order, even if that prince might well be tempted to rely on said merchant for a loan or even appoint him to an important political administrative position within his lands. Furthermore, it's inaccurate to think of Prince's ruling over a unified territory and more useful to imagine him in control of certain imperial estates or representative assemblies within his collection of lands. These representative assemblies were in control of a particular area and as the ambition and resources of the prince grew, he could incorporate additional lands into his property portfolio. Through marriage, inheritance and sometimes warfare, a ruler could expand his domains, sometimes acquiring additional estates in the new lands, sometimes just expanding the writ of a given estate that was already there. On occasion, then, a ruler could possess several estates, and therefore several votes in the imperial diet. Through such a process could the electors acquire more power for themselves, yet the expanding princely family would never dream of abandoning the formal imperial distinctions that made his different estates unique. The Elector of Brandenburg, to take one example, would never think to remove the old identities or names of any new estates he came to possess. It was a possession of these estates across his scattered lands, rather than the often underdeveloped lands themselves, that granted him his power, you see. Within all of these estates, the social hierarchy of the empire was reflected, and the pecking order was reinforced. The opinion of a prince, for example, was rated far higher than a representative of an imperial free city, especially as the city's representative tended to be a commoner, was confined to the back of the hall, and was obliged to stand in certain stages of the deliberations while their attendees could remain seated. This gave a public face to one's rank within society, and it ensured that the three-tiered social estates were represented in all walks of imperial life, from the imperial diet to the very smallest of the regional assemblies. At the bottom of the pecking order, in both society and representation, existed, the commoner, than at the top of the princely imperial order, behind only the Holy Roman Emperor was the Elector. In the next episode, if you're feeling brave enough, we'll familiarise ourselves with these electors and assess what exactly these seven important individuals did and how, critically, their responsibilities contributed to the outbreak of war in 1618. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode history friends patrons and phd pals i really appreciate it and i hope you're enjoying this more regular influx of episodes in the month of january for the next two weeks after this we'll be delivering you two more episodes so i hope you're looking forward to that and for those regular listeners make sure you check out that teaser for poland is not yet lost if you want to have more of a clue as to what's going on in the patreon members feed which you can of course join for $5 a month. Until next time though, history friends, this has been episode 2 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for letting me live my dream and study and work on this podcast. I super appreciate it, and I'll be seeing you all soon.